0: Tim and Kate, thank you. I'm grateful to lead with you today. Thanks. I'm glad to be led by you. I needed, boy, I needed that prayer. Um, good morning, everyone. The Lord be with you. Hey, my name is Troy, and I woke up this morning with all of the pollen in West Michigan inside of my body. Sorry to not be sharing that with you. Um, I feel a little stuffy. I'm going to push through that. Um, There are few things that I love more than a freshly cleaned windshield. Um, I heard that. I heard that one clap, all right? Especially like right out of a car wash. It's still okay. It's kind of satisfying when I use the squeegee at the gas station. But frankly, there's always that line. Do you know the line? That line that I, I'm, I'm not a big person and I can't quite reach the whole expanse of the windshield so I have that one l- Does anyone know what I'm talking about? But you friends, out of a car wash with those gigantic cloth wipers and those uh, amazingly powered air dryers to come out of the car wash with that fresh windshield, it's like, I'll tell you, that surface of that windshield, for me, is a glimpse of the fully restored kingdom in creation underneath the consummated rule and reign of Jesus. Thank you. I'm not exaggerating. When I look outside of that windshield, I see visions and images of the book of Revelation. I see cherubim and seraphim flying around, shouting and screaming for all that God has put back together, glory, hallelujah. And the glory of that windshield is so good for about 90 seconds, right? In 90 seconds, some kind of overhead deposit will land on my windshield. And I am likely, no, I am sure that I will find a bug. And I don't just find a small bug. I always find a prehistoric bug. (laughs) A kind of bug that will absolutely cover half of the windshield and flirt with cracking the surface of the glass. 90 seconds into glory, it always happens that this windshield that was just a second ago so clear giving me this glorious glimpse of the world. Well, it's been violated, and it leaves me just a little bit shaken. And I gotta tell you, that's how I feel sometimes when I read the Bible. That I open up the scriptures, and I get this glimpse of this wonderful world this unsullied creation. I get this glimpse of relationships that are loving and generous and humble and self-sacrificing. I get a glimpse of everything being put back together and then it doesn't fail within about 90 seconds, I come across a verse which messes everything up. I come across this verse that will smash against this glimpse that I have And it leaves me questioning everything. It leaves me with all these doubts and with all these concerns. It leaves me with this worry that what I just read could potentially crack the foundations of everything that I hold to be true and unshakable. Does anyone else understand the thing that I'm talking about? We're going to continue our series this morning, focusing on episodes from the Old Testament. And I want to tell you a story today that I think on the surface will appear very, very familiar to you, but I think it has aspects and it has glimpses that sort of like a bug hitting the windshield starts to color things differently and potentially has It has the possibility of really shaking things up. Um, And I want to use this old friend, the flannel graph, to tell the story this morning. Don't worry, those of you who are behind the flannel graph, you won't be there forever. And by virtue of technology, you'll be able to look at this on the screen above you. All right. Let's do this. I want to start talking about a person named, um, let me start with a person named Moses. You potentially have heard of Moses before. Moses looms really largely towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, In fact, uh, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the end of Moses' life. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Kyle Lake, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we find Moses is in a place called Moab. Moab is just across the Jordan River from a city called Jericho, and Moses is standing on top of a mountain, and he's looking at what's called the promised land. He's looking at a region that has been promised to the people of God, promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but Moses has been told, guess what? You can see the land, but you'll never be able to go into it. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is 120 years old when he dies. And the Bible tells us that Moses, had, he didn't have weak eyes, and he had all of his strength. So he still had something left in the tank, but he wasn't going to carry this thing out. Moses had laid his hands on somebody named Joshua. And we find right after the book of Deuteronomy is a book called Joshua. And Joshua is the son of Nun. It's one of those ha-ha moments in the Bible, right? He's the son of none. And Joshua has been essentially commissioned by Moses. And he's been told, you are actually going to carry out the thing that I couldn't do. And God speaks to to Joshua and says, rally the people because you are now going to enter into the promised land. Be very strong, be very courageous because I am going to be with you. And so Joshua calls the people together and he says, we gotta, we're going to go after this thing. I'm going to send a couple of spies into the city to see how it is. And then we get, this is all in the beginning of the book of Joshua. We get like an Ocean's Eleven scene in Joshua. We get, uh, get these people doing these back channel deals and they start these secret negotiations and then there's some backstabbing and then there's a narrow escape and then the spies make their way back to the camp to make the report and all the people say great we're going to go in to the city and so then they cross the river jordan and this is another miraculous water crossing most of the time we think about crossing water that's miraculous is the red sea with moses leading the people here's a second one God parts the waters of the Jordan River and all of the people cross over safely. It's another miraculous crossing. And then the people come to the other side and they are looking now at the city of Jericho. Before that, they, they celebrate. They celebrate the miracle of crossing the water. They celebrate the Passover. They celebrate so hard that some men decide to get circumcised, different time. And then they make their way towards the city, and an angelic being shows up and says to to Joshua, in a total echo of what the divine said to Moses earlier in the Old Testament, Joshua, take off your sandals, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then we come to Joshua chapter 6, today's teaching text. Into what we understand and what we call the battle or the fall of Jericho. So, Jericho is the secure city, no one comes in, no one comes out, but God has promised this city, this land to the people. And the task, the way that this is going to be accomplished, well, it's unique. Rather than like a peaceful negotiation meeting where we can have, do a handoff of lead, of ownership, or rather than an all-out military attack, something different is planned. God says, I put this all on the wrong side. I should have practiced. Flannel graph, an art form that has gone woefully out of date. Um, okay, so God's plan is this. He's going to... He's going to say, he says, take some armed men. By the way, I'm so sorry for the woefully Caucasian people on this flannel graph. I am aware that ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern people were not this color. All right, That being said. Um, take some armed men and march around the city. Begin with some armed men. And then I want you to take some priests. Now, remember, priests, um, th- these are religious people. They have religious function, they have religious duties. So it makes some sense when the priests are told, take some trumpets, trumpets which had a religious function primarily. They were used on festivals, high holy days. They were religious, so they say, take some trumpets and also take some priests and have them carry the Ark of the Covenant. Now those of you who like Indiana Jones will have some resonance with Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, this is the movable throne of the invisible yet living God. This is central to the faith and religious understanding of God's people. In fact, throughout Joshua 6, whenever the Ark is talked about, it's talked about in a couple of ways. Sometimes it says the Ark, sometimes it says the Ark of the Lord, and sometimes it just says the Lord. They're interchangeable. The ark is so synonymous with God's presence. It is understood that where the ark is, God is there. And so these priests are not just bringing trumpets, a ceremonial thing. They're literally bringing God with them on this march around the city. Significant. This is a liturgical procession. This is a religious service essentially happening as they're marching around the city, unusual, unique. What's happening here? And then there are supposed to be a few more armed people. Let's just throw a few more light-skinned people up here. These armed guards basically bookend the procession, and then they are told what? You probably remember. They're told, march around the city. Armed men don't make any sounds. Trumpeters, blast your trumpets, and do this for six days, one time every day. Now, if you remember last week, Kyle Lake was helping us to see a little bit of the the significance. He was reminding us of the significance of numbers in the biblical text. And he told us last week, six is an incomplete number. So when they're told here, do something six times, that's a trigger. Oh, that can't be the end of the story. That's incomplete. There must be something else to come. That can't be everything. And then we're told that they're to march now a seventh day. Seven, a complete number. You're to march a seventh day. And on that seventh day, march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time around the city then you're supposed to shout. The armed men join the noise and you shout. And so the trumpets are blasting, the ark is being carried around, and armed men are shouting. And that's when the walls come a-tumbling down. And then people just waltz right in, right? They walk in, they take the city, everyone lives happily ever after. That's what we heard in VBS. That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I commend to you, a great resource. That's where the Jesus Storybook Bible ends. Verse 21 of Joshua chapter six says this. And they destroyed with the sword every living thing in the city. Men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep and donkeys. The word of the Lord. Do you remember a minute ago when I mentioned the windshield and this sort of disruptiveness? of something clashing into the windshield. Does anybody feel like that when you come to the end of this story? A theologian, I think, sums this up really well with this quotation. One moment we are considering the mystery and wonder of divine love as fundamental to the calling and the choosing of Israel, and the next moment we are considering such choosing as the basis for apparently divine-sponsored genocide. Gulp. One moment we see God as loving, the next moment we see a deity who apparently sponsors mass murder. This gigantic, violent bug has just smashed into my previously clear windshield, and now I'm having a really hard time seeing clearly. I want to spend the rest of this teaching talking briefly about the ending of this story and talking about some of the possibilities that might be available to us in light of what we just heard. First, let me talk briefly about the ending, that ending. I want to give a real quick drive-by of some various ways that really smart people approach the end of this story and other parts in the Old Testament that are problematic or that are troubling, okay? Very quick non-exhaustive drive-by. Let me begin with I'm going to begin with something I'm calling option 0, and that is shh, silence. I'm calling it option 0 because I don't want this to actually be an option for any of us. But I'm naming it because I recognize how attractive it is how attractive it is to not talk about these parts of the Bible. It's very tempting because these are complicated, at times gruesome, impossible to reconcile parts of the Bible. They can seem contradictory to so many other parts of the Bible. They can be hard teachings, really hard conversations. Most of us want to avoid those things at all costs. Shh. When we asked this community to submit ideas for this summer's teaching series, many of you submitted texts like this. Texts that are complicated and problematic and troubling and confusing. We recognize the stories are here, so what are we supposed to do with them? I want you to know that our teaching team and our pastoral staff at large, we are not interested in silence being our tactic. We are not interested in silence being the way that we address those questions. We mean that generally, but we mean that especially as it relates to the Bible. We have spent over a year talking about how one of the parts of our annual plan has been to pursue and to find ways to equip our community to engage significant conversations. And we, I think that that's got to include conversations about the Bible as well. And so for us, silence is not the tactic. You may not agree with every interpretation that comes from this stage today or this stage on any Sunday, but at least we want to commit to you that we are going to address even the diciest bits of this sacred text, that we're not choosing silence as our tactic. All right, next option. First real option is dismissal. This is slightly better than silence. (laughs) Silence. just barely better than silence. This is the impulse to justify not talking about this stuff. It acknowledges that you're not gonna talk about it and looks to provide an excuse for it. For many people, this lands in the camp of, well, these are fictional parts of the Bible. This didn't actually happen. Or these are things that would have been added later, later translations or later editions and versions of the Bible. And so since they didn't actually happen, we don't need to spend time talking about them. We can gloss over them and move on. We can dismiss. Another option would be to shrug. Hmm. And this is closely related to dismissal. It's, it's a kind of attitude that chalks up all these stories that we find problematic and troubling and say, well, that's just the weird Old Testament. This is just weird. I don't know. What do we do about it? It's just there. I guess it's, we just chalk it up as you know what? That's probably the God of the Old Testament and not the God of the New Testament. And I want to stop on this one and I want to really caution us about that kind of thinking and about that kind of an attitude and that kind of a perspective. Because if we are not careful, we could move into a mode of thinking and therefore a mode of believing that would put the parts of the Bible in conflict with one another that would start to divide God into a really good God in the New Testament and a not-so-good God in the Old Testament. In the second century, a really prevalent heresy called Marcionism was around, and part of what Marcionism taught was that there was a good God and a bad God. And that kind of heresy, I use that really cautiously, but that kind of heresy lingers. It it is still around. It is the kind of sneaky thinking that we find in some places that say, well, we, we preach the New Testament and not the Old Testament. Or we think about that has been done away with and something new has been brought to bear. And I want to say that we take really seriously the whole of the Bible and we take really seriously the sacredness of both of these parts of the text. And we want to caution everyone to not have this mentality of a kind of bifurcated God. I could say a lot more. I need to keep going. Um, next option. I'm calling divine intent. This, there are some who believe that God actually never commanded and never wanted to see these kinds of things happen in the Bible. That it was actually people who acted without faith. Had they, been, had they believed in God more, they wouldn't have needed to do that kind of a thing. Or they went out on their own. They acted rogue. God can't be blamed for this. It's not on God's hand. This is, these are people who did something that God never intended. That is, a, that is a perspective. Another option is just generally cultural. This is an appeal that's somewhat similar to a shrug, but its starting place is more academic. It would say something like this. It would centralize the historical context, or it would talk about the cultural norms of a particular period. As it relates to our story, it may say something like this. Well, in the ancient Near East, everybody raided everybody. And everybody wiped everybody out. That's just, that was a cultural practice. And that would be one way of kind of understanding it. And then finally, uh, uh, again, so uh, incompletely, but I want to mention metaphor. And this is an approach that uh, tends to take the text much less literally. And would say, we're on the lookout for a larger lesson or a larger principle to bear here. They might look at today's story kind of like a parable of Jesus. So it might be true. It might not be true. That doesn't matter. What matters is what it teaches us. I'm spending a little bit of time to put just a few of these things in front of you to continue to stress that lots of smart, faithful Christians look at the Bible in all kinds of different ways. And we're a part of this tribe that has a lot of different eyes and minds as it comes to the text. And so if something inside of you as I was telling the story and highlighted the ending thought, oh good, Troy's going to crack the code once and for all. You've given me more credit than I could ever in a lifetime deserve. I consulted about two dozen commentaries for this particular teaching. And almost none of them agreed. <laughs> Everything that I just showed you from those six options, the six, they were all represented in those 12 commentaries. People are thinking all over the map about these kinds of things. If you're interested and you want a little screenshot, um, here's just a small collection of books that for me, has been helpful, has been instructive in the way that I'm looking at some of these problematic, troubling spots in the Bible. And these books don't agree with each other. They also have a wide variety and range of opinions about how we should handle and think about those things. What I think is helpful to not get lost in this sort of impossibility of deciphering, is to return to what Tim Nelson encouraged us on the very first Sunday of this series. That there are a couple of ways for us to think about and to hold and to approach the Old Testament, which I think are ways forward. Tim recommended so wisely that we approach the Old Testament being on the lookout for theological witness, being on the lookout for invitations to participate with the divine, and above all, to approach the text with curiosity. I think that's a helpful pathway when we think about the ending of this story. Let me say this. If you find yourself troubled by the ending of this story... And troubled by the violence let me affirm that and let me say don't disregard and don't try to do away with that violence but in that reaction to violence but to investigate it to dig deeper try to figure out why you're so troubled by the violence Consider that a pathway. Consider it a theological pathway for you to investigate and to pursue. Where else does this show up in the text that's troubling and problematic for you? Where else does it show up in our world that's troubling and problematic for you? Where is divinely sanctioned violence taking place throughout history that's problematic and troubling for you? Maybe on the flip side, how are you potentially desensitized to violence at large? Where does violence not trouble you? Are there moments where you think it's okay and other times not as much? Take some time and investigate that. Allow this story to provoke a deeper dive into your relationship, to your understanding, to your convictions about violence, both in your own life and in the world at large. Consider it a pathway. And then as it it relates to being curious about the Bible, I want to say that that was always going to require of us humility. Curiosity with the Bible will always require humility. I'm reminded of that provocative question in Romans, who can know the mind of the Lord? And I don't use that as an excuse. I I use that as a way of positioning ourselves rightly in relationship to the text a healthy interaction with the Bible will routinely remind us of our limited understanding. We all see from such a small perspective. All of us. I think many of us, and I'll put myself in this camp a lot of times, many of us want to have a predictable God. A predictable God who doesn't operate outside of the theology that I grew up with. A predictable God who doesn't act in ways that are that make me uncomfortable. A predictable God that doesn't behave in ways that I find disagreeable. The Bible has always confronted its readers and its hearers. May we not resist the invitation to be humble and to be curious every time we are in front of this text. And let me say this. Our teaching team is united in lots of different ways, but particularly we're united around this one desire, that every single one of you would be increasingly committed to reading your bible i know that sounds old fashioned puritanical whatever but we are desiring that each one of you would dig deeper and deeper and deeper more and more often that you would read and reread and re reread re reread Friends, please avoid the temptation to elevate a single disruptive aspect as justification for dismissing the whole. Please don't pick a couple of scenes that trouble you or bother you in the text and then dismiss the Bible outright. Or even worse, to be justification to exit the faith the worshiping body. Instead, investigate, dig deeper, read widely, be humble, be curious before this text. And then finally, I I just want to encourage you to bring that humble curiosity uh, to the possibilities that are present in this story. I'm really glad that this is a story that gets told to children. I mean, usually not to verse 21. But I'm really glad that children are the recipients of this story. Because I think maybe they are the best audience. Because they believe it might be true. This is an inescapably supernatural event. And we adults have a really hard time with that. I think it's easy to dismiss this story as fiction. You're telling me, you're telling me that a group of men Intending to take control of a city. They employ a liturgical procession. Some priests blowing trumpets. Some other priests carrying this bulky religious furniture. That they employ a religious procession. And use all of the armed men as bookends. And they're all commanded to keep their mouths shut. Whose bright idea was that? That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) Let me just leave you with two questions. Two questions to consider. Two possibilities that might come out of this story for us. First, I just want to be blunt. Do you believe that God is capable? Do you believe that God is capable in unexpected and perhaps unexplainable ways to break through what seems impossible to capture or to overcome? Do you believe that? Good old John Calvin, he was talking about this story in his commentary, and he's, he observed this, that at any point, the people who were inside of Jericho, they could have ended this long, annoying parade at any point. Think about that. I'm imagining people were, I imagine looking over the top of the wall to see what's going on, and at some point, you're just, let's just stop it. They had a whole week. (laughs) They had a whole week of opportunities. Calvin, sounding like he's probably more from Downton Abbey than he was Swiss, he wrote, this is the translation, which is crazily English. Should the inhabitants of the city suddenly sally forth, whatever that, sally forth, the army would without difficulty be put to rout. They were defenseless. They could have, this could have been ended so quickly, but even in this unconventional military showdown, the divine power acts. So what are the habits, the addictions in your life? Tim already invited us to pray this morning. What are, where are your relational blockages? What are the emotional and physical sicknesses that you carry? What is your spiritual dryness? Can you imagine God bringing the walls of those seemingly unconquerable places tumbling down? Second question, are you open to God using you in unexpected and surprising ways? I keep thinking about the people marching around the city. I think about the priests. What are we doing? And what are we doing here? I think about the armed men. I wonder if they were embarrassed. They kind of know what to do with their weapons, but they've, they've been asked to just walk around and to keep their mouths shut. This reckless military strategy, it must have been so confusing for them. I can meet, like I said before, I could easily imagine people looking over the wall and laughing and insulting and intimidating. And everybody, but the trumpets are told to be quiet. And then it's so striking when the walls do eventually come down. It's when the people shout. Yes, the power of God the whole time has been concealed in weakness. But the people have been involved from the very beginning. Here's one of those other glimpses that Tim told us to be on the lookout for. There's been participation with the divine from the very beginning. Friends, are you open to be using by God, even if it means looking kind of silly? Are you open to potentially looking like a spineless coward, keeping quiet when all you want to do is raise your voice and shout out? Are you open to the possibility of being questioned whether you know what you're doing? Are you open to the possibility are people questioning whether you're capable? Are you open to the possibility of being doubted? Are you open to the power of God being made known through you, even at the expense of your reputation or the way that you appear to other people? The historian Wayne Meeks, he once wrote this, one of the most remarkable things about the biblical story is that God, who has represented as being faithful to his covenant, is forever surprising and often dismaying his people. And then I'm struck how we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus' life and ministry took this openness to being used and this openness to the power of God operating through and in him. He took this to the extreme. Jesus who encouraged people to love their enemies, to bless those who persecuted them. Jesus who encouraged people to turn the other cheek when they were struck. Jesus who encouraged people to give more clothes, to walk farther than was required. It's silly. The same Jesus, Jesus made his way into a city, into Jerusalem. And he made his way into the city with all of the people expecting and anticipating that he would be the conquering king. And instead of showing up into the city, galloping in on a war horse, he clip-clops in on a donkey. And instead of parading in and conquering the city for God's people, he weeps over the city. Who does that? And then at his trial, instead of sticking up for himself, instead of protecting his identity and his reputation, Jesus doesn't speak. Jesus offers up no war cry. Instead, Jesus allows the power of God to be manifest in his very weakness, to be made manifest in his being made nothing, to be made manifest even in his death. So may we all be open to the power of the resurrection, speaking to us and through us, may the unanticipated work and power of God break through everything that seems impossible to conquer, break through everything that seems too powerful. Come, Lord Jesus, come.